Hey, and welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. On today's episode, I'm talking with author and Ohio native Brian Alexander about his new book, The Hospital. I've been following Brian's work for a while now, so it's a real joy to have him on the show. If you don't know his previous book, The Critically Acclaimed Glass House, you should. Brian has a gift for unearthing the deep causes and human consequences of inequality. And while his writing addresses some pretty tough topics, in this case, the absolutely ludicrous way the American healthcare system functions, he does so in a way that keeps the people who are most affected and focused, as well as the communities that have to find their way, even as large systems may trample on them and discard them. In the case of his new book, The Hospital, Brian has once again turned his focus to Ohio, this time the small northeast Ohio town of Bryan, Ohio, in Williams County. I learned a lot from the book itself, but it was great to be able to talk with Brian about it as well. I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, before turning to Brian, I'd like to ask you, if you like this episode of Prognosis Ohio, please help us to make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. This is a shoestring operation, a passion project we pull together late at night and on weekends. But podcasting costs also actually add up to some serious money. We use whatever support we receive to pay for the technical platforms for recording and hosting, things like that, so we can keep spotlighting community voices and important issues here in Ohio. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash prognosisohio. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. We really appreciate it. Okay, now to my conversation with Brian Alexander. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Believe me. So, you know, I want to thank you not just for taking some time to talk with us today, but for writing this fabulous book. I mean, I I loved uh, Glass House. I've followed your work um, for some time now. And I I think the last time when I saw you at Ohio University a few years back, we spoke briefly after your talk down there and you said, I'm working on this hospital book. And I thought, oh, because I happen to be working on a large hospital project too as an academic, not as a journalist. So I was really uh, you know, excited to, uh, to see what this is going to be. And then all of a sudden came the big reveal. Of course, at that time, we had no idea that there was going to be a pandemic. And uh, Oh, yeah. You know. Well, he, you know, I was almost done writing the book when uh, the pandemic started. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was a whole extra angle and, and um, chapter that I did not know I was going to have to write. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come to that because I think it's an interesting context. It's In some ways, the pandemic is like this huge thing, but in your story, it's also sort of like not the biggest thing. It was like totally predictable how the American healthcare system would fare through something like the pandemic. It was. I mean, um, and you know, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, I suppose. But I, uh, to me, the pandemic and the, the fallout of the pandemic really only underscored the pathologies already at play. So let's start at the beginning, though. So, you know, the title of the book, The Hospital, Life, Death and Dollars in a Small American Town. But the hospital was the piece that I I just wanted to take a minute to think about, because in some ways, you know, the book is about a hospital, but in other ways, it's totally not about a hospital. Like a hospital is sort of this focal point, and it's an indictment of the, the larger American healthcare system, if we can even call it a system. 
So I, you know, and, and that system with its tentacles, its entrails, all that stuff. I guess I wanted to start by asking you, why focus on a hospital? Why, why, why is the, the hospital piece the, the title? And why is that the kind of starting point? Well, if you think about it, uh, when most people talk about medical care in this country, hospitals come immediately to mind. Hospitals are like, you know, the big auto garages where you go to take your car. And so we go yeah. in to take our bodies in there. And, and for about 120 years or so, hospitals really have been at the center of healthcare in this country. Um, and by focusing on a hospital and a small hospital in a small town, I felt I could use that as a lens to examine these bigger issues, not only of medical care, but of um, economic inequality, social inequality, and how that affects not only health in the literal sense, but the health of our society. So you cast the hospital as a focal point, you know, on the front cover, you have the hospital, it's a beautiful picture, but then there's the kind of like the town beyond it, right? right? And Hospitals are, as you know, not just places where there's medical care and all that that includes, but they're economic engines in their own right. I mean, many American towns like Bryan, I mean, it's the place. It's the place that employs sometimes more people than any other industry. But when things go wrong with a hospital, things go wrong with lots of aspects of that community. So oh, yeah. I guess I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about the, what's the broader critique of communities being so dependent on hospitals and the kind of role they play. Well, you know, I really first got interested in this idea when I was working on my previous book, Glass House. People would, in Lancaster, which is where that book is set, Lancaster, Ohio, would often say to me, well, you know, our hospital is now the largest employer in the town. And many people said this as a kind of point of pride, that the hospital had grown and it was now uh, the, really the largest bit of the local economy. And I, I found that somehow a little bit disquieting, and I never really <laughs> could figure out exactly why I did, but I did. So I looked into it a little bit, and many towns uh, all over Ohio, all over the Midwest, really all over the United States, hospitals are, in fact, the largest employers. In the case of Bryan, Ohio, as is true of the hospital in Lancaster, Ohio, about two-thirds of its revenue comes from government, Medicaid and Medicare. Mm -hmm. Often in these towns, there is a deep suspicion of government. So there isn't quite the realization that two-thirds of the revenue of the largest employer, the, the, really a big part of the economic engine of these towns, is actually government revenue. It's government tax right. dollars are supporting these places. And what that, you know, Phil Ennen, who was the CEO of the hospital in Bryan, the, the subject of the book, um, said, you know, he, he in an Atlantic Monthly story that I wrote uh, about rural hospitals, he said, you know, I'm, I'm not, we're the largest employer, but I'm not really proud of that. Hmm. Uh, he viewed it as a sign, a disquieting sign also, because that meant that the old manufacturers, the old line companies, that they were either downsized or gone altogether. And so that productive uh, part of the economy was greatly diminished. 
we've seen this certainly all over Ohio and all over the Midwest um, as steel, auto, glass, you know, name the industry um, has declined. They've either fled south to right to work states or they've fled overseas. Um, that leaves tax dependent institutions as economic drivers of local communities. That's a fragile situation. I mean, in a way, the fact that the hospital is the biggest thing is just because everything else has been gutted around it. Right. And then the hospital goes, I mean, that's part of your story too. The inevitable sort of movement, the evolution of this is consolidation. And you have the big systems, um, you know, uh, vying for those spaces. I mean, o- Ohio is a great example of this. The Cleveland Clinic is certainly the biggest employer in Cleveland. Oh, yeah. And this is true of, of many places uh, in Ohio and elsewhere. It's one of the things that I, I kept reflecting on as I was reading this, because obviously this show, we talk about Ohio and we're in Ohio here. I am. You're in California. But um, but in a way, your book is almost about any any town America, right? Yes. And there are many, many places like Brian. It didn't have to be about Ohio at all. No, this is Brian and the hospital there, CHWC, they are really avatars for two or three hundred, maybe a thousand other places around the country. So, um, as I mentioned, you know, Brian isn't, of course, it's unique, right? And it's a, it's its own place and it has its own history, but it's also part of a trend we find all around the country, especially consolidation in the hospital industry, uh, which continues unabated. And some people are just positively enthusiastic about it. Like I remember Toby Cosgrove from the, from the Cleveland Clinic back in the day saying, that, oh, consolidation. I know there's critiques, but like this is going to be good for patients and it never seems to actually be good for patients. Um, I guess I want to ask you, so you know, you wrote about Lancaster and your roots are not in this region of Ohio, but how did you first hear about this place? How did the story come to you? Well, as I said, I was doing a story for The Atlantic uh, on the fate of rural hospitals and the trouble they were having keeping their doors open um, through a circuitous a series of events, I managed to get in touch with Phil Ennen, who was the CEO right. of the hospital in Bryan. And we did an interview. Uh, I wrote the story and he contacted me after the story appeared. And of course, my first reaction was, oh gosh, what did I screw up? What did I get wrong? You know, he's going to yell at <laughs> right. me. Uh, but that's not what he wanted. He actually liked the story. And he said, you know, if you really want to go deeper on this, you ought to come and see how we are managing to stay open here. You ought to visit our hospital and our town. And at first I thought, well, geez, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I got to pay for all that. So do I really want to do that? And I eventually said, yes, I do. Partly because hospitals are notorious for being rather closed mouth, especially when it comes to reporters. But Phil seemed willing to let me nose around in the hospital's business. So I went, I spent three or four days talking to people in the hospital, observing, talking to local people, people in the community. And I thought, here is an opportunity to do just what I said before, to use a small town and a small hospital as an entry point to talk about a number of these other issues in all of the United States. 
So I sat down with Phil and he said, that sounds great. And off we went to the races. It really does jump off the pages. Just um, as you know, journalism is under, you know, is under siege and we've had newspapers shut down in Ohio. And there's a real question of who's going to tell the story on the healthcare beat and, you know, all, all of that. But Phil Ennin also is a really unique figure in healthcare in his willingness to talk. I mean, I, clearly he trusted you and you did right by him in telling this story. But I have to say in my own research, even academic research, just even requesting access to archives from hospitals that were receiving federal money, you know, that should su- supposedly were nonprofit and had some kind of public obligation. They, they were really, really careful with their own records. Um, I, you, you mentioned that, that line there before. Actually, the language you used in the book was that they're notorious for being unforthcoming, which I thought was some really masterful diplomacy on your part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and, and I guess I just want to ask you a little bit about that. So, like, aside from Phil, you know, and, and just the willingness to talk about the institution. I know you tried to uh, interview some of the CEOs of the local healthcare systems. No surprise that they didn't want to talk with you. No. Um, but, you know, but it seems like uh, lots of people in the community had stories, too. And so you had some insiders and then you had some just people who were, you know, people who had received care or felt something about the hospital. You know, um, it's interesting that you bring that up. The, the other day, my uh, my literary agent said to me, you know, you're really old fashioned. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you know, most people these days, they sort of drop in and they do whatever the work is and they leave. You're like there for 18 months, two years. And I said, well, yeah, I don't know how else, if I were smarter, I guess I could figure out a, a, a more economical way to do it. But but I'm not smarter, and so that's the way I do it. Uh, but the advantage of that is people see me all the time. I mean, I'm always hanging. I, I often do what I call reporting by hanging out. Uh, I, I'm in the tavern, or I'm in the cafe, or I'm in the cafeteria of the hospital, or I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm just sort of sitting there. Um, I would just go and sit in the ER. And eventually in that way, and you know, at first nurses and doctors were like, who's this guy and what's going on? Um, but eventually when you're there long enough that people know that you're just not going to fly in and fly out, that you're really invested uh, and that you care about it and you care about them. And so people are more willing to open up. Uh, to me, this just requires enormous amounts of time. Um, it, and as, as I say, if there were another way to do it, I might do it that way. But this is the only way I can figure out to do it. Just go and be there and really spend time. But also, you know, back to Phil Ennin. I mean, just the idea. I mean, Phil Ennin is also old school, as you describe him. Yep. You know, he was not a hire every consultant, uh, I see type. He was... You know, he wanted to run his hospital. He wanted to be careful of margins, but also just like he really loves the hospital business, not even the business side, just the the, the, the care that hospitals provide and their significance to the community. So I think you probably were you know, a pretty good pair in that regard. And he saw and still sees the, the benefits of local control. Yeah. You know, when, when your hospital is actually owned by a health system that is headquartered 50 miles, 100 miles, 
300 miles away, your town can become an afterthought. But in the eyes of CHWC and Bryan, Ohio, Bryan and Williams County is their primary, almost only focus. And, and one of the things that becomes really clear from your book is the sentiment. I mean, having a hospital is a real source of pride, it seems, for a lot of people. Like a town without a hospital is on its way to becoming not a town at all. I've watched you know, consolidation in Ohio and elsewhere, and the Mayo Clinic went through some of this as well. Well, yeah, we shut this hospital down, but we opened this clinic and we, we've assured that, you know, there are accommodations for people who are delivering babies or, you know, need to get to an ER or something, but it's not the same. No. Like there's this way in which people feel something about their hospital. And that comes out really clearly that like a hospital, not just even closing, but even just being bought out, it changes the whole nature of a place that you can have this feeling for. It's one more bit of alienation for these uh, smaller communities. Uh, they're, the fact that it's not their local thing with their local people. And another thing that's important, you know, people think hospitals, they think doctors and nurses um, who all make, you know, respectable incomes, but hospitals also employ a, a lot of back office people, janitors, food service people, all those are local people. And when you are consolidated, merged into a big system, things like billing and so on, that gets shut down and that goes away. So those people lose their jobs. So there's a there, there are a lot of implications to having your own local hospital. Now, there are people and and the government, although it doesn't come out and say this, but the suspicion within Brian certainly is that the government really wants consolidation. It's a lot easier to deal with, you know, 50 yeah. or 60 big health systems than it is with you know, what, 1,500, 2,000 small community hospitals. Um, but to add to those people there in, in Bryan, they like having their hospital in their town, and especially the leadership of the town and the county recognize its importance. But of course, as we've, as, as we've seen during the COVID pandemic, those large systems can also toss around the federal government more, right? They can they can extract, you know, the the um, the bailouts and the all those subsidies um, in ways that the small hospitals can't. That's right. I mean, the the, the point of bigness is to be the three hundred pound gorilla, and that's true of not only health systems dealing with the government, but dealing with insurance companies, drug companies, medical device companies. And they, in turn, all also want to get big in order to battle each other out. So what we've done in this country, as I point out in the book, we have turned medical care into just another business. And I think that that's sort of shocking to a lot of Americans. They, they don't want to yeah. regard medical care as just another industry. But in fact, that's exactly what we've done. Well, you know, lots of countries, um, when you study comparative health systems, um, there are some countries, even these countries with socialist traditions, right, who have decided, you know what, yeah, we're becoming more and more capitalist, but like education and healthcare, those are off right. limits. We're not right. we're not commodifying them in the same way. So there's also like a middle way. This is not just about like the 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 boogeyman, you know, socialism kind of stuff we hear. No, uh, and you know, we've had this argument, as I point out in the book. We we've had this argument about what 
medical care in this country should look like for over a hundred years now. And the accusations of socialism or communism, or as the former head of the AMA once called it, medical Soviets, um, has been going on all that time. The argument literally has not changed in over a hundred years. So throughout the book, you know, and, and I think you're right about this. Uh, you suggest, and you, you come close to just saying it, but you're 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 a really good writer, so you withhold a little bit, and you want to tell your story. But you seem to suggest that you know the difference between nonprofit and for-profit hospitals is just kind of very little and and almost laughable in in, in application, right? Yes. So you write, for example, the, the big nonprofit hospitals continued to act like corporate for-profits, but now with COVID-19, the screen that hid their true nature collapsed. The real difference, and tell me if I'm getting this right, is the real difference for you seems to be between local, independently run hospitals and large systems, You know, whether they're for-profit or non-profit. I guess I just want to ask you, what, what did you learn in Brian about how we should be thinking about those distinctions, even though nonprofits have tax obligations, supposedly, but there's just big money at the end of the day. Very big money at the end of the day. Um, you know, it's called when, when you're dealing with a nonprofit hospital, whether it's a standalone hospital or part of a big system, you know, they call it um, their operating surplus. It, it, you and I would just call that profit. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, just last week, ProMedica, the big Toledo-based uh, healthcare system, announced um, a really big, quote, operating surplus despite the pandemic. Part of it came because right. they were able to get a lot of CARES Act money. Um, but part of it came also because they were still doing good business. Uh, and they are they went into the pandemic sitting on billions of dollars of investment. They had that socked away. Uh, you know, we, we think of a nonprofit hospital as not being particularly interested in making any more money than is required to do the services that they're supposed to do under their nonprofit status. But now you've got big systems right. investing in golf courses and hotels, uh, real estate. They have for-profit arms now. That's a nonprofit healthcare system, but with a for-profit arm. The, the Cleveland Clinic's a good example yeah. of that, right? In Abu Dhabi and London, and like they have all these other campuses, and those are for-profit operations. Oh yeah, Be- and because people pay retail in those places, they don't have to deal with health insurance. I mean, they're paying cash, and they want that. They want that money. Mm-hmm. So University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is doing the same thing. They're opening up uh, outlets in Europe and. And you know, talk to people in Pittsburgh, and U- UPMC is the giant Goliath uh, there. Um, you've got hospitals opening branches in South Florida, so they can get that retiree market. Uh, this is look. This is an industry. It's a business, and we need to recognize that as we move forward and we start thinking about what we're going to do about medical care. You don't just come out and say, like, this is the policy solution. That's not really your job as a journalist. But you do, you know, you pull on so many different threads in the book. Uh, You do point to some of the Medicare for all discussions that are out there. You've noted that, you know, we've been at this for 100 plus years now of talking about what American healthcare should look like. 
I guess, you know, and it may, may be that it's just not your job and, you know, it's not the work you want to do, but I, I wonder if you changed or refined your thinking about what is required through this, because it's a really devastating critique and it's not clear at all what you do, right? Consolidation just seems like this monster that's eating everything. And, um, you know, it, it almost seems impossible that like Medicare for all or national health insurance is going to push back on all these big interests. So it's a long question, but I, but are there clear policy threads that you think need to be pulled on? Are there clear things that can be done? Um, of course, like it assumes that people are going to get up and scream about it and act and, and all of that. But I wonder where you ended up with that picture of like where we go. Well, that is a good question that requires a long answer. So I'll see if I can uh, condense this a little bit. Uh, my first uh, sort of recommendation would seem to have nothing at all to do with healthcare policy, but in fact it does. And it's really a big focus of the book. And that is we have a very serious inequality problem in this nation, economic, cultural, social inequality. Yeah, And inequality yields poor health. Uh, it is it is a creator of physical and mental pathology. We have a rather cruel system now, and it's my belief that the current version of American capitalism um, has gone astray and that this economy is quite literally killing people. So I had, there would be a lot, you know, we should have a, at least a $15 minimum wage. Yeah. You should not have people working full time who qualify for Medicaid. And that happens right. in lots of places and especially in places like Bryan and Ohio and Williams County. Uh, that's bad for your health. And I go into that quite extensively in the book. And it's my argument that no ultimate policy, um, Creation. If we, if I, I say in the book that if we blew up the entire American healthcare system tomorrow and instituted the best possible national health plan, but we did nothing about the way the economy works for a lot of people, we would not solve the problem. It really right. requires both. But there are some specific health-related things that I talk about, uh, and this comes from some personal experience. So, you know, most drugs prescribed in this country are generics. Right. The generics are made by for-profit companies. That's fine with me. That's, that's okay. But since they are generics and they're off-patent, why can't the government go into the drug business? Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's take a very common drug. Uh, a thyroid supplement. Millions and millions of Americans take a thyroid. Um, it's not that big of a deal. A um, couple of years ago, it sold for $7.50 uh, for a month. That's not bad. That's pretty cheap. Um, and then overnight, the price was $15. Now multiply that extra $7.50 by millions and millions of people. If the government would make the drug at zero profit and zero loss. So you charge for the drug just what it costs to make it. It wouldn't be costly to the taxpayer and we could have cheaper generic drugs. And we would also not be facing supply problems. Go into any small hospital in this country and ask for their list of um, in-demand drugs that they're short on 
they've got a very long list that have sometimes have to delay surgeries and delay treatments because they literally can't get the drug because there's not enough profit margin for companies to make the drug. And so you end up with drug shortages. There's one easy small thing right now that shouldn't even be controversial that we could do. Right. No, of course. And, and you're right. There are a lot of those things. I, I was um, talking with some students today and they said, well, you know, I'm, they're really confused about why the American healthcare system continued to just suffer like this. And they said, you know, aren't there good ideas out there? And I said, it's, it's not about ideas, right? There are lots of good ideas. Unfortunately, with policy, I mean, the $15 minimum wage that you mentioned seems like a really good idea to many, many people. But we saw the politics play out just this last week of why it, it's it's not going to happen, at least not right now. And, and and you give a good example of this. The other thing I'll mention is that you know, a lot of these drugs were also developed initially with government funding. So we haven't really had that conversation uh, about you know what obligations that gives us. Um, Precisely. Yeah. You know, when when we're funding these things and then they take it to market, make a billion dollars, and then they, you know. They just run with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, go to any uh, medical care provider, especially if it's a university-based provider, and they'll have a release form for you to sign that will say something like, uh, you know, we get to use your tissues that we take from you for any research purpose. And if they create a blockbuster billion-dollar-a-year drug out of your own tissues, that's good for them. And they, you know, the doctor who does that gets to get rich. And I'm, I'm actually all for that guy getting rich, but his raw materials came out of my body. So I've, I've become, right. especially since doing this book, I've become a bit of a, a cranky old curmudgeon with it. I cross those things out on the, on the <laughs> list. I think they don't notice it. And if they ever noticed yeah. it, they would, they wouldn't let me get medical care. It's a really good point. And I think as people look more into it, the more they find. I mean, one of the things that I love about this book, and you know, obviously I read it with great interest as a health policy person, but you do this interesting balancing act. Um, you know, the first 200 pages, I mean, it's just a lot of details about hospitals and you learn a lot about the terrain. And then it kind of just like is very in the weeds of the humanity of it all, you know, following people. Um, this guy, Keith, that you really got, you really got to know some people very closely throughout the course of reporting on this. And then, of course, at the end, you have to come back and offer some kind of perspective on where it all goes. But I, I think there's the there's the inhumanity, but also you do a good job uh, showing that this is just, this, these are people who are trying to live their lives and this is how this affects them. Right. I mean, that that's, it, it, you know, there's a quote from a woman who started a federally qualified uh, health center uh, Janice, who appears in the book, and she uses this metaphor of puppies. She's, and she goes, this is how nonprofit, you create a nonprofit because you're interested in puppies and you want to save all the puppies. And then over a period of time, the nonprofit ends up becoming about how you keep people employed in the nonprofit and you've forgotten all about the puppies. This is what happens oftentimes in hospitals. Hospitals are trying to stay in business, get bigger, grow. And the point of treating sick people is almost sometimes an afterthought. No, no hospital will come out and say that. Yeah, they have to talk in terms of excellent patient care and, uh, you know, how much how much they care about healing yep. and all these kinds of corporate slogans that I know you share 
uh, share with me a kind of disdain for yeah. the trivializing of such important things. Yeah. So. And unfortunately, in Ohio, Ohio's health outcomes are not good. Nope. They're not good. And you know, Ohio used to be a state that was really proud of its progressivism. And I, and I don't mean that in sort of the current you know, who's a progressive or a liberal Democrat. I mean, progressive in the sense of universities and hospitals and public goods. Ohio was a leader in that sort of thing. Nowadays, you know, and Ohio University is a great example. It costs too much money to go to Ohio University. It, it, the the right. state needs to be kicking in more money for its universities. The universities are drivers of economic gains. They're drivers of equality. Uh, it should not cost $27,000 a year for a kid to go to a state school. Amen. Well, Brian, uh, thanks so much for taking some time to talk about the book, um, The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. I mean, it's a fantastic read. I'm going to make my students read it whenever I can get them to read things. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and everybody else as well. So it was, a, it was a real treat just getting to talk with you about it. Dan, I really appreciate it. And I certainly appreciate your interest in the book. Thanks to Brian for coming on the show and discussing his book. Thanks also to the good folks at St. Martin's Press for helping to set it up. You can find The Hospital wherever fine books are sold. Here in Columbus, I'd encourage you to get the book from an independent store, like Prologue Books in the Short North or Gramercy Books in Bexley. A third option is to go to bookshop.org, which is an online consortium of small bookshops around the country. As always, we're including a bunch of links in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com so you can learn more about Brian's work, find the book, and read up on some of the issues we touch on in our conversation. This episode of Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me with editorial and production assistance from Claire McGee. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at prognosisohio. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback. You'll find links on our website so you can do just that. If there's anything on your mind, send us a sound file and we may end up running it on the show, possibly with some commentary. As I'd like to mention, we welcome ideas for themes you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. Stay tuned for our next episode, dropping in about a week, in which I interview Andrea Hoffman, a student at Ohio Northern University, among other things, about life with cystic fibrosis, especially during the pandemic. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks, everybody. Be safe and be well.